Well, good morning, Athens First United Methodist Church. It is good to be with you on this beautiful first Sunday of the month of September. It is Labor Day weekend, and I am so grateful to be in worship with you on a Sunday where it's starting to feel like we're getting a little bit closer to fall and September. It's nice to come in on a Sunday where it is not 100 degrees outside. It is also uh, nice to be in the room looking around. I see some people that I saw yesterday at that other holy landmark in town. Sanford Stadium, and even if I didn't see you yesterday, I can tell just by the subtle glow of sunburn on your faces that not only were you there, but I know where you are sitting in the stadium. It's a beautiful thing to be in worship together this morning because today we are in week two of our, of our stewardship series. It's called Bearing Fruit. It is the five practices of fruitful churches. And uh, if you weren't here last week, one of the things I explained is that this actually comes from a book that was written by a United Methodist bishop. His name is Robert Schnazy. And years ago, he said that there are five practices that the healthiest, most vibrant, vital, growing, and fruitful churches practice on a consistent basis. Those five things are radical hospitality, passionate worship, intentional faith development, extravagant generosity, and today we're going to be talking about the fifth, and that is risk-taking missions and service. And so to do that, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that comes from the 25th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. I'll be starting uh, with verse 31. Hear now the Word of God. Now when the Son of Man comes in His glory... And all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from the other as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom that has been prepared for you since the creation of the world for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? But the king will reply, truly I tell you, whenever you did these things unto the least of these, you did them unto me. Then those on the left will say to him, he will say, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire that, the, that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, but Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison, and we didn't help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. O gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts gathered here together be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, thou who art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So when I was growing up, I can't really say that I was the biggest fan of the first day of class uh, when it came to elementary school and middle school and even high school, because for me, the first day of class was always intimidating and was always just a little bit scary. But when I got to college, when I got to college, I absolutely loved the first day of classes. I think part of the reason why I love the first day of classes is because in some ways, uh, that first day of class when I was in university always made me feel at least a little bit like a grown-up. I know that's a strange thing to say for someone who is the ripe old age of 18 years old, but it's true. I felt kind of grown-up and like an adult. Because, of course, where I went to school, uh, classes weren't required, but they were encouraged. And so it is that in just choosing to go to class, rather than be required to go to class, it made me feel like such a responsible little adult in choosing to do the right thing. So that's one reason why I love the first day of class. Another reason why I love the first day of class is because it always felt to me like on that first day of a new semester, like the possibilities were endless. You know, what that semester was gonna be like and what it could mean. I can remember walking to class and just, and just thinking out loud, I wonder, I wonder what this semester is going to hold. Like, I, I wonder if I'm going to love all of my classes, or I, I wonder if, if I'm going to enjoy all of my professors. Is this the semester where I finally get straight A's and I make the dean's list? Of course, that feeling didn't last very long maybe about a week, and then it all came crashing down. But the fact that it was a possibility for at least a little bit of time was really, really nice. I love the first day of classes for so many different reasons, but perhaps the biggest reason is because on the first day of class, in just about every one of my courses, I was guaranteed to get what was by far the most important document of the entire semester, it was, of course, the indispensable class syllabus. And what I loved about a, a good class syllabus is the fact that it always felt like, like it was kind of a roadmap for the entire semester. You know, it always let you know exactly where you were going to go and what you were going to be doing, what pit stops you were going to hit along the way. The class syllabus always gave you the most essential information, but among the most essential of the information it gave were two things. The class syllabus would always tell you what was expected of you and how you were going to be graded. And if you had those two pieces of information, then you had everything you needed to pass the class with flying colors. I've always appreciated a good class syllabus. And that's probably why I've also always appreciated that story that we just read from Matthew 25. It's often referred to as the separating of the sheep and the goats. 
The reason why is because in a lot of ways, whenever I've read that story over the years, it seems like at least in some ways, it's kind of like a class syllabus that was written by Jesus himself. Of course, the, the course that Jesus would be teaching could have been called any number of different things. It could have been called Discipleship 101. It could have been called Judgment Day 101. It could have been called How to Be a Sheep and Not a Goat 101. But regardless of what the class would have been called, the bottom line is this. If you read the syllabus closely, Jesus gives us two really important pieces of information. What's going to be expected of us and how we will be graded on the final exam of faith. Because at the beginning of Matthew 25, Jesus basically says, so on that day, on the day when the Son of Man comes with all of his angels and he sits on his glorious throne, on that day, all the nations will be gathered in front of him. And he will begin to separate the people from one another like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep will go on his right, and the goats will go on his left. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, those who are past the class go on my right-hand side, and those who don't pass the class will go on my left-hand side. And so, of course, you can imagine what this was like for any of Jesus' disciples as they're listening to this teaching from Jesus. Because, of course, the word Disciple actually means student. So literally, they're, they're, they're students who are listening to their professor, to their teacher, to their rabbi. And as he's telling them this story, you can imagine that they had some questions. Questions like, okay, Jesus, so, like, what's the criteria? Like, what's going to determine who you place where? Who gets to be on your right? Who gets to be on your left? Like, what's going to be expected of us? To say it another way, how are we going to be graded? To which Jesus says, that's actually a good question. And the answer is really quite simple. It's just one thing. How did you respond to others in their time of need? And you can kind of picture some of the students laughing and going, yeah, right. Like that's the only thing that's going to be on the final exam of faith. And Jesus said, no, really. That's the only thing that's going to be on the exam. To which the students kind of get a little bit incredulous. They say, no, 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 that, that can't be Jesus. That can't be the only thing that's on the test. I mean, what about like, well, what about church doctrine? I mean, that's a pretty important thing, right? So aren't there going to be some, some questions about church doctrine on the final exam? And Jesus said, No. And they said, well, well, what about the Bible? The Bible's obviously an important thing. Aren't you going to ask us how we interpreted the Bible? Did we get it right or did we get it wrong? Or, or at the very least, aren't you going to quiz us on how many different Bible verses we memorized over the years? And Jesus says, yeah, uh, no, <laughs> I won't be. To which the students say, well, well what, what about at least church attendance, I mean, that's going to at least count towards the final grade, right, Jesus? Because, of course, like, I went to church on Labor Day weekend. 
Nobody goes to church on Labor Day weekend except for the most faithful of saints, especially on the morning after a 6 o'clock game the night before. So Jesus, please tell me church attendance is going to count towards the final grade. And Jesus said, no, actually it doesn't. hate to tell you. Now in the end, it's really just going to be one thing. How did you respond to others in their time of need? Meaning, how were you compassionate and kind? How were you selfless and sacrificial? How did you strive to be an extension of my unconditional love to others? And the student said, that's it? Jesus said, that's it. And do you want to know why? Do you, do you want to know why that's so important to me, Jesus says? Because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. When I was without clothes, you clothed me. When I was sick, you looked after me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. And of course, all of the students look at Jesus and they say, whoa, 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 wait a second, Jesus, wait a second. When did we see you in any of those situations to which Jesus says, ah, you see, that's the thing. You see, whenever you did these things unto the least of these, you did them unto me. According to Jesus, there is only one thing that will be on the final examination of faith. It is how did we respond to others in their time of need? And you know, in the church, we actually have a word for that. Uh, the word is missions. And missions actually comes from an old Latin word. The word is missio, which literally means uh, to go and to serve and to witness. Jesus says that, the missio of God, that is the only thing that's going to be on the final examination of faith. And according to Bishop Schneezy, it is also one of the five practices of fruitful congregations. Meaning that it is one of the five things that churches who are growing healthy, strong, vibrant, vital, and fruitful do on a consistent basis. You could argue that it's the most important thing that a fruitful church does on a consistent basis. Because the fact of the matter is, you can have all the other signs of church vitality. You can be a church that practices radical hospitality and passionate worship and intentional faith development and even extravagant generosity. But if you aren't serving others, you have totally missed the point. Why? Because Jesus said serving others is the entire point. <laughs> to be a fruitful church, you have to be a missional church. But in order to be a missional church, Bishop Schneezy says that you can't just engage in any old kind of missions. Meaning that you, you can't just slap the word missions on something that you do and assume that it automatically makes it meaningful or important or that it makes a difference in the world. For instance, I remember 
some years ago, I, I was back in my home state of Connecticut. And one Friday night, uh, I decided to go to a local high school football game. So I'm driving to the game, and I notice that just across the street from the high school, there is a church that's selling uh, parking. And it's, on this sign, it says $10 for parking, and underneath it says, to help raise funds for our missions ministry. Well, being the very faithful person that I am, I thought, I'm going to go help do some missions tonight by parking my car. So I did. I went into the parking lot, and I found a space. And on my way out, I noticed the guy who kind of seemed to be in charge of things was up front, and he was collecting the money. And so I asked him on my way to the football game. I said, so uh, what, uh, what mission are you guys raising money for? And he said, what's that? And I said, the mission that's on the sign, what, what are you guys raising for? Oh, 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 that mission, that mission. Yeah, that, um, that mission is actually, we're, um, we're going to be painting uh, the choir room with it. I said, your choir room or someone else's choir room? And he said, well, it's actually our choir room because, you see, we didn't put that in the budget this year. And the pastor said, if we want to paint that choir room, we're going to have to raise our own funds, and so here we are, and we're raising the funds. I said, so your, your mission project is you. He said, yeah, that's it. And I wish I had parked at another parking spot. Because in that moment, I realized what Bishop Schnazy was saying. He was saying that just because a church does things that are called missions doesn't necessarily mean that the kind of missions that Jesus was talking about. Because in order to be the kind of missions that Jesus was talking about, Bishop Schnazy says they have to be what he calls risk-taking. And what he means by that is not that it needs to be this perpetually dangerous thing that we get ourselves into, or somehow it needs to be life-threatening at every turn. No, it's just the kind of thing that always puts the needs of others before yourselves. You know? It's the kind of thing that, that will always put the comfort of someone else in front of your own comfort, comfort level. That you would be willing to go outside your box, to get uncomfortable, to roll your hands up and get your hands dirty in mission, in ministry to the world, because that's what the world needs in order for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Most importantly, risk-taking missions is contextual missions, because what contextual missions means is you know the community around you. You know what their hopes and their dreams and their needs are. You know what your community needs, which is kind of important because as Sarah Beth said earlier, how can you love your neighbors if you don't know who they are? And so some of the most risk-taking, profoundly meaningful missions in ministry that a church can engage in are contextual because it's listening to the needs of the community around you and saying, Let's step up to the plate. It's like back when I was in seminary. I had a preaching professor by the name of Tom Long. And I remember Tom Long used to tell us about this, um, this beach house that he and his wife bought years ago, just a little cottage up on the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. And he said, nine months out of the year, my wife and I are Presbyterians, but for three months in the summer, we're Methodist. Why? Because there's only one church in town, and it is Antioch United Methodist Church. Now, Antioch United Methodist Church is not a big church, 
but it is a, a church with a big heart for its community. Because one of the things that they do are a lot of different missions in and for their community. So for instance, one of the things they have is a, is a food pantry every Saturday. They feed about 45 to 50 families. They have a professional clothes closet where people can come, and if they need clothes for like an interview or something, they can take them free of charge. It's really helpful. They even have like an English as a second language course that's, that's taught by some retired school teachers, and they said every year they have at least 10 people that graduate from their course. But perhaps the most impactful thing that they do at Antioch United Methodist is they leave their doors unlocked 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now I know that probably sounds like a strange thing for a church to do, but one of the things that they discovered in their community is that what the people need is a place to go. A place to go to pray or to be by themselves, to meditate, to spend time with God. Sometimes people need a place to get out of the cold in the winter or out of the rain in the summer. Sometimes people just need a place to come and sleep for the night. They found out that that was a need in the community, and they said, fine, we'll leave the doors unlocked 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, of course, I know that this is a risky thing because it leaves you open to all kinds of things, vandalism, burglary, all the things that could happen. But they said, over the years that we've done it, we actually haven't had that many problems. But then one day, they got a letter from their insurance company. And the letter said, we appreciate what you try to offer the community, but as the people who insure your church, we need you to lock your doors. You're open to way too much liability. And if you don't start locking your doors, we're going to have to drop your insurance. So, of course, the church, <laughs> the church decided to hold a, a church meeting to come up with some solutions to the problem. One person, one person said, well, can we just switch insurance companies? And they said, no, no. You know, they're, they're all essentially the same. So if it's not this one, it'll be the next one. And somebody else said, well, do we actually need insurance on our church and somebody said yeah we kind of do just in case something happens and so round and round and round they went and they couldn't come up with a solution until finally they said i guess we're going to have to do the thing that we really don't want to do this incredible thing that it's been for our, our community we're we're going to have to lock the doors so that's what they did they went out and they bought this big padlock and they put it on the front doors of the sanctuary. But next to the padlock, they hung the key to the padlock. <laughs> and there was a sign underneath the key that read, Dear Jesus, here's the key to your church. Feel free to use it if you or any of your friends need to get in. In order to be a fruitful church, we've got to be a missional church. And in order to be a missional church, we have to be a risk-taking church. And in order to be a risk-taking church, we have to be the kind of church that looks out into its community and understands its context, that understands its needs, and is always willing to put its needs in front of our own. That's what it means to be a fruitful church. 
And I could not be prouder to serve a church that has been that, that is that, and will continue to do that for as long as we possibly can. But of course, if we ever forget, if we ever forget how to do that, Jesus said, it's okay. The only thing we need to do is to go back and reread the syllabus because it has everything we need to pass the test. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.